coming up on One Decision. There was a very real and clear and present danger for anybody who served alongside us. And we've got tons of them left there now because of our broken bureaucratic processes. People care. People really care about this. And what's unique about this is that it's, I like to say this is the most American thing that's ever happened. Hello, welcome back to One Decision, where we look at the good, bad, and excruciating decisions. Sometimes people take them on all on their own. I'm Michelle Kosinski. Today, we talk to a veteran who saw heroes, not American ones either, being left behind in the fall of Afghanistan and who could not not do something about it. His name is Sean Van Diver. But first, let's check in with Britain's man of action and former spy master, Sir Richard Dearlove. Greetings, sir. Thank you, Michelle. Very nice to see you again, or to be speaking to you again, I should say. You know, when we last spoke about Afghanistan, it was about all we feared could happen. It all happened. Yeah, it was shocking. And, um, you know, I felt a degree of personal involvement because having, I mean, I was involved way back uh, at the start of the crisis in Afghanistan, back in when Western troops um, went first into the country. And of course, getting people out of there was a potentially deadly proposition for those tens of thousands of Afghans who had risked their lives for years helping Western forces, the interpreters, fixers. I remember the ones that I worked with at NBC. They had difficult lives to begin with, and I don't know where they are today. I can't understand, you know, why more forethought wasn't given over a long period of time to the issue of evacuation. And of course, using that airport in the city made the whole question of access far more difficult. Um, Because if they had kept the airport at Bagram, you know, which has had two runways um, away from the urban areas, okay, you've still got to get out there. But it just could have been done in a much more organised fashion. But of course, the collapse of the country was so rapid. I mean, it was terrible, absolutely terrible. Did you watch any of the testimony that the Secretary of State gave before Congress? I frankly found it just too difficult. I'm sorry to say it was so incompetent. So in the midst of this, it has been remarkable to see private groups gather the intel, the contacts and the resources to get people out of there. I'm I'm tremendously in awe of these individuals who were completely able to improvise these escape routes and evacuations and get people into convoys that then, you know, drove through um, Afghanistan to the Pakistani border, to the Tajik Board, Tajikistan border. I mean, it's incredible, really, to see that. It's heartrending what people have been through. And there has been evidence of the Taliban retaliating, killing people. So I, God knows what's going to happen. So the whole economy is, is, is about to implode. People left behind who can't get to their bank accounts, can't withdraw money. Uh, I, I just wonder how, how they're surviving. Do you have any optimism for the future that the Taliban can run things? I suppose there's a remote possibility that they may be able to put together some sort of basically functioning government. But, I mean, it's quite clear that the way that women are going to be treated is in 
particular, you know, is it is different from the standards that we expect in the West. And I was listening to a, a feminist Islamic scholar recently, you know, and, you know, she said that if you look carefully at the Quran, none of the justifications for the Taliban's attitude can be found in the Quran at all. Um, so one gets into very complex ideological religious territory and clearly one cannot really be very optimistic about what's going to happen in the country. Agreed. I think over a 20-year period we had created an obligation which mm. uh, in a way, in my view, we should have fulfilled. Um, and that means taking decisions not influenced by domestic political considerations. And I'm not even sure it was necessary uh, to leave. Um, you know, there could have been a continuing NATO commitment to the Afghan government, which could have been, you know, durable over time, I think. Who do you think is more at fault? The Trump administration for making this out deal with the Taliban or the Biden administration for implementing it as shoddily as it did? Both. <laughs> I don't think. I mean, I think it was a, it, it was a bad deal that Trump negotiated and it was a bad implementation that Biden followed through. Um, I think Biden should have dumped the negotiation that he inherited and maybe started again, which would have been possible. Uh, it, I mean, the, the crucial thing was the withdrawal of American air power. And that could have continued. Got it. I mean, and I, you're talking to someone who was opposed from the beginning, mm. and there were a group of us in the British government at the time who were strongly opposed to any large-scale military deployment. We wanted to do it on the basis of small advisory, mainly special forces teams in each of the provinces, working with the tribal leaders to keep our, as it were, security concerns under control and but not to f fundamentally change Afghanistan. Mm. I mean, I went to Russia on behalf of the British government to talk to the Russian military intelligence, the GRU. Wow. And I mean, their, 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 their clear advice was don't get heavily involved militarily. Because look what happened, you know, to the power of the Russian military. Mm. Uh, wow. And they said, over, over time, the same thing will happen to you. And then somewhere, Tony Blair took a decision along with the US, and that was towards the end of 2004, the policy changed, and we were committed to initial deployment of 10,000 troops and helicopters and hardware and all yeah, the rest for sure it's it's, tra it's a tragedy i feel like the icing on the foul cake in the past few weeks was then the u.s for half a day tracking that poor aid worker and then 
droning him and his family, thinking that the water that he was delivering was explosives. I I would just wonder how it was that they got that so wrong. How egregious would you say that failure of intelligence was? Or, you know, something that could easily be mistaken when you're watching someone's movements from a satellite? Well, I think that could be easily mistaken, particularly if you're convinced that your informant, you know, has given you accurate information and there might be all sorts of reasons why you feel that. Um, But, you know, in a complex tribal society, you can easily be misled. So many decisions by so many players over decades leading to today. Let's talk now to someone who made a very personal decision in this. Sean Van Diver, 12-year Navy veteran in San Diego, a consultant by day, but his passion project is foreign policy, which suddenly took an incredible turn. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I'm really excited to be here. As a veteran, Sean had long been adamant about standing by all those people overseas who had served American troops, who were then eligible for these special immigrant visas to come to America, or SIVs. For nearly a decade, he has advocated for them. I've been alarmed by the SIV issue since 2013. And frankly, no administration has done a great job on SIV, which is frankly really disappointing because there's so many uh, implications that come with not taking, not keeping our promises and not taking care of our friends and allies who stood by us and, and fought alongside us against their own countrymen. Through Sean's work, he became good friends with a man nicknamed Lucky, an Afghan interpreter for the U.S. during the war, who had been able to move to San Diego in 2016 on one of those special visas. But in August, Lucky had journeyed back home to Afghanistan for what he felt would be the last time he could see the Taliban's approach. So I texted him, didn't hear back for a couple days. And then when I did hear back, um, I knew that that we needed to get his family out as, as fast as possible because it was clear from the news that Kabul was going to fall. Tell me how you were feeling when you were watching this. I, I remember it was days before the Taliban really swept up to the capital. I was talking to an Afghan government official, one of the ministers, and he was saying, oh, well, we definitely have the capacity. It's all going to come together. And I was pressing him on that, just like, what do you mean? Like, they're basically <laughs> they're basically at Kabul's door. Like, what are you saying? I had friends. Uh, I had friends on the ground in Afghanistan, Lucky and others, who were telling me like, hey, this is getting very dangerous here. It was very clear that that reality was not reflected in the public statements by our government or any government. How did you feel knowing that people were trapped there? We make a promise to somebody. We tell them that if you serve with us for a year, you'll be able to come over to the United States and, and become an American. And instead what happened was we made that promise and then threw roadblock after roadblock after roadblock in their way. and. And what we see now is a direct result of that. So few people have actually spent time in Afghanistan to see it up close, for one thing. 
But then they don't really understand the risks that these people were taking to work for the U.S. military. Describe what that's like for them. What would happen is we had these forward operating bases all throughout Afghanistan to make sure that we were able to further American interests. We would send our folks around to um, to recruit these young men and women to work on our behalf. And uh, and in every forward operating base that we closed, uh, those people kind of just were stuck there, right? So uh, in the case of one of my friends, he moved to Dubai for three years while his SIV paperwork processed. And he, because he couldn't work in Afghanistan, he would be killed. Um, he got married on my birthday in 2016 in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And on that day, somebody with the same name as him and another one of his friends were killed in his village. Uh, and it wasn't a coincidence. It was because the Taliban had found out that he had come back to get married. Luckily, he and his wife were able to make it out. But there was a very real and clear and present danger for anybody who served alongside us. And We've got tons of them left there now because of our broken bureaucratic processes. When you're there, you get to you get to know these people that you're describing, even as a journalist. And then you have to leave and you just feel so guilty. What is it about Lucky and who he is that really struck a chord with you? I met Lucky at a press conference that he had been through so much in his life. His name is Lucky because he got blown up twice. Um, and, and made it through with all of his fingers and toes and everything else. Uh, mm-hmm. What struck me is that he has a deep civic pride for both Afghanistan and the U.S. We didn't know then that he would be going back to Afghanistan to take care of his wife or take care of his mom and introduce his baby, his four-month at the time, his four-month-old baby uh, to his family in Afghanistan and say goodbye to the country. And he thought he was mm-hmm. going to make it out on August 28th, and that's why... That's kind of what got me involved and was the impetus for all of the, the good work that, that I've been a part of here. At what moment did you say, it's go time, I need to act? I was sitting at my computer, the computer I'm sitting at now, and it was Saturday morning and I get this text message from Lucky that says, brother, sorry, I haven't been in touch. I had to walk to the top of a mountain in Argoon. Um, the Taliban has us surrounded, we're running out of ammo. I shouldn't, uh, you know, he, he went back there to save his, his country, his, his villagers and his family there and didn't tell his wife, didn't tell anybody that he was going to Urgun. Um, he, so he went down there to fight alongside his, his villagers and try to get some of them out. Um, we ended the conversation with him saying, brother, I don't know that I'm going to make it out. Will you please grant me my last wish and help me? Oh get my, my God. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It was horrible. He didn't see my messages for two days. It was like heart wrenching. Um, so, so I spent Saturday sobbing and trying to figure out, like asking around for you know five or ten k here or there from just a couple people to raise the money that would be required to get four people out of a war zone, so that when his family woke up, we'd be able to say, "Hey, you're good to go to the airport, right? Let's get you there now." Well, by the time everybody woke up, Kabul had fallen, and the airport was not operating commercial air anymore. So um, so then I started texting members of Congress that I know, asking what the options are, what can we do? 
through Sean's contacts in the Truman National Security Project. He had founded the San Diego branch. He teamed up with people who were trying to charter flights out. With others, they crafted a secure form online where Afghans could upload their documents in case later they had to burn them to hide from the Taliban. He connected with other veterans, including Jack McCain, the late Senator John McCain's son. And virtually overnight, they raised $4 million in pledges. Their little movement, born out of panic, was taking off. People care. People really care about this. And it's... and. What's unique about this is that it's, I like to say this is the most American thing that's ever happened. Jack and I couldn't be more different. He comes from Republican royalty. I'm a Democrat nobody. He's a helicopter pilot. My job in the Navy was to literally, like the motto was, if it flies, it dies. He's an officer. I'm enlisted. Uh, and and the, the differences go on. But there was no daylight between us on this. We believe that uh, that because we made these promises... We have an obligation. Uh, we, you know, we've served alongside these folks. Jack served over there and trained a bunch of Afghan Air Force pilots. I didn't serve over there. I served all over the place where we had translators. So we stood up a little op center in my house. I think it must have been Monday night. Um, and then Tuesday, I get a message from Lucky at 6 a.m. Or he's like, brother, I made it to Kabul. Sorry, I've been unable to contact you. Like, what? How are you alive? And... One thing about Lucky is that he had just gotten his uh, his commercial driver's license here in California. He was starting a uh, a business, a, a truck driving business, so he could uh, so he could you know provide for his family. Uh, so he took this jingle truck that had a fuel tank in the back and uh, dressed up like a like a service provider and went through all these Taliban checkpoints. Oh and, my like, gosh! This guy's with grease all over him, and he said he smelled really bad. And he had hidden all of his documents and his phone and all of that, talked his way through Taliban checkpoints because he's very charismatic, and uh, and got to Kabul. <laughs> so, like, that day is when we stood up our op center here. It was a really good day. We felt like we were making a difference. And there was a lot of ups and downs during this process. But um, that just meant that Lucky was in Kabul now, right? And the, the hard part began. So he went to the airport and stood out there for 14 hours and didn't get in with his wife, his eight-month-old American citizen baby, and his three-year-old daughter. Um, Everybody in his group was either a green card holder or an American citizen, and they still couldn't get through the gate because of the throngs of folks. Lucky, again, living up to his nickname, managed to get his family on a military helicopter, wait at an airbase for 18 more hours to fly to Doha, a few more days for a flight to Germany, four more days to get to Washington, D.C. Once they got to Dulles, it took them uh, 14 hours in immigration to get through. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty wild. And then they were kind of on their own to get home, which is (laughs) insane. So I got him a hotel. He could have asked for uh, any uh, five-star meal. I would have. Yes, yes. Jose Andres that catered himself. Like (laughs) we, we would have done anything for him. And he just wanted Pizza Hut. So I sent him Pizza Hut. And then I booked him flights, him and his family flights to Dallas, where his brother-in-law lives. Uh, Then Mm. two days after that, we flew him to San Diego. There are tears in my eyes listening to this. Well, it gets better. A team of former interpreters and officials met the family at the airport, celebrated with them. Later, the San Diego Padres and a member of Congress took everyone to a baseball game. 
the people behind us bought these folks baseball caps to say welcome. <laughs> and and I want to talk for a second about that piece and about how this thing is the most American thing that I've ever seen. We saw people from all walks of life, all ideologies, and they said, we're going to get this thing done. So once you get Lucky and his family out, how are you then continuing to do this? What was the process even? This is a total team effort. So there's folks that are that have intelligence operations on the ground that are sharing information across uh, folks who have uh, transportation help on the ground or folks who um, have uh, networks of Afghans that have they've been friends with for years. And there's folks that are coordinating charter flights and there's folks that are uh, that have friends who were Marines at the gate and and a litany of just digitally enabled communication across a matrix of capability. And then also, yeah. there's not a single person that got out without some sort of government support. And so mm-hmm. while, while there's been a lot of talk about how government has failed in this, um, the resettlement organizations, the State Department, and kind of a lot of the, the key players in between here have, have been gutted. And so their capacity has been greatly diminished and, and timelines were put into place. So there was, it was kind of a, a, a perfect t- storm of terrible that resulted in, in what happened here. And also the U.S. government was able to evacuate 120,000 people. So now what is resulting here is, is the need and the desire and, and frankly, um, a new way of doing business, which is interesting because government has never needed what what these private groups have to offer, which is data and real-time field intelligence and, and all these other things. They've kind of had it on their own. And so this the, working together with government has been kind of the uh, the main story here, right? Like these these groups being able to work alongside government partners in, in unofficial and official capacities to um, – to each each group playing their role amidst the chaos and to quiet the chaos uh, has resulted in in better outcomes for Afghans. Uh, it bothers me that the government, to get some of these people out, really needed to work with you guys. I think it bothers everybody, right? We wish that this was better. We wish that this was a better, um, that the world was in a better place. But I think that Focusing on the positive and, and look, it's not nothing that government is embracing these private orgs and and wanting to engage with us. And and that added capacity is not nothing, right? It is important that we look at this digital workforce as what it is. Added capacity of folks who have a little bit of uh, knowledge of how to operate in these environments. And I hope that that comes out of this as a new um, a new capability for state or DOD or any other government agency that would benefit from one of these. uh, I agree. I agree. But don't you kind of wish that when it comes to this, like life or death for some of these people, that you go to your military or your State Department with help and then they're like, oh, we got this. We, we got that. Like, we don't we have so many people. We don't need help of outside organizations like that would be ideal, really. That would be ideal. But, you know, we're lucky to live in the United States where that's happened a lot. Right. And there's plenty of other places around the world that that's just not the case. Yeah, for sure. And look, we're 
we're living in a time where the the phone that I'm holding in my hand right here uh, has more processing power than the computers that calculated how to get ordinance on target uh, on my first ship. And, and that's great. <laughs> how many people was your group able to get out and how many are you still trying to get out? So tracking those numbers is hard, but I think we're getting to a better place now. Um, about 5,000 people we think we've helped and certainly uh, ten, tens of thousands of names collected in forms to help them. Uh, we've also stood up micro grants uh, for folks that are not in the resettlement process, but folks like Lucky and Nassad and Aziz here trying to get on their feet. But we know there are at least thousands of people there that would mm -hmm. like to get out. But what was the best process for getting people out of there? We'd compare what was working, what wasn't working. Uh, we would discuss uh, uh, things that were we were seeing that were suspicious and we thought maybe were... Uh, Maybe we're traps, but there was no best way, right? Every day it changed. So at some point it was getting people to the gate and getting in touch with Marines at the gate. Um, mm -hmm. with, a, with a, you know, you've heard of Task Force Pineapple. Uh, they were working within government and without to uh, ensure that uh, the, the folks they were trying to get into the gate knew to say pineapple or knew to show a picture of a pineapple and mm -hmm. get it. Other days it was uh, getting people on buses and getting a, a caravan through. We collapsed all of the various lists so there could be one source of truth and, and, and Afghans weren't being asked to submit their names a hundred different ways, any one of which could have been compromised. Right. Um, and so it was all it was all that that groundwork, the intel collection, and then the the essentially the professional services over here. Got it. It just seems like it's so hard to imagine, like having somebody in a house somewhere outside Kabul or inside Kabul and then f working from San Diego, being able to get them either into the airport or out of the country. Like to me, it's like a miracle you were able to get anybody out of there. That's right. It is it is pretty wild. Um, it's complicated. You can't just call somebody up and say, "Hey, can I borrow your plane?" and they just land it and then leave, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to you have to get permission to land. You have to get insurance, war uh, war and risk insurance or war risk, yeah, WRI. Uh, you have to get secure permission to land somewhere else, and those that country has to be willing to take in whoever's on that plane. You mentioned you had good days and bad days. Yeah, sure. So a bad day was obviously when the bomb went off at the gate and we knew that we had friends that were at the gate and we knew that Marines were dead. Now it was a gut punch and it was really hard to continue. Even though we knew we had to, it was really hard to continue knowing that this could happen again. Um, a really, really good day was when some of our friends that were part of a high risk group, I'm going to be very vague about who they are, but mm -hmm. some of our friends who were in a very high risk group and we'd been focused on them uh, and, and we'd been trying every day to get them in the gate. Every day we were met with a new challenge. Uh, they like surprise got in the gate uh, in some, in a fashion that we didn't expect. And it was all of them. They'd all gotten in and oh, in very short wow. order, they were on a plane and uh, Jack McCain and I decided we brought this bottle of uh, Jefferson's, uh, aged at sea whiskey to the operations center. And we Aww. said, we're saving this. Like we're going to celebrate the wins with this. And we had had, it sat there for a long time before we could celebrate a win. And 
uh, it was like 10 a.m. And we, this thing happened and we were like, oh my God, we did it. Like it happened. Holy shit. Uh, So I looked at Jack and I'm like, dude, we got to have this. And he's like, absolutely. So we poured, um, we poured a little whiskey and we celebrated at 10 a.m., which is not my, I don't like to drink that early, obviously. (laughs) Uh, And it's really good whiskey that's aged on a boat and two Navy guys working together who couldn't be more opposite, um, toasting to every person who was a part of this. (laughs) And, And look, the reality is, is that the real credit goes to these Afghans who, that through their tenacity, their resilience, and their uh, and their dedication to their families and, and to our country, we're able to get out. Today, with the U.S. military gone, it's a whole different game. Sean says they can't say a lot about the process now, but they work with government partners and stakeholders in Afghanistan to still try to sort out safe passage for people any way they can. Are you having to coordinate with the Taliban? Uh, no, that's one of the commitments that uh, that our our groups, our private groups, have made. Is we don't have any business coordinating with it. We're, we're not diplomats. Was there ever a point where you were like, "This is not going to work"? So, absolutely, of course, we had doubts. Um, we every day I woke up and said, "Like I've been trying to get out of this business since it started." <laughs> right? I have a day job. Um, I have a family. I have a, a 15-month-old daughter. Uh, my wife is a saint. Uh, my overarching concern in all of this has been that we would do something that, that got somebody killed. And and so we have to be very judicious and careful about how we engage and about how we raise hopes for these folks who are having the hardest time of their lives. And they're yeah. very worried that they're going to die. They're very worried that, that they're families aren't going to make it out. I, I almost hate to ask, but have there been people that you knew of that you were trying to help who have been killed by the Taliban since this happened? Um, we have lost folks that like people in the coalition have lost folks that have like, like lost comms or, mm. you know, there was uh, one person in our coalition was on the phone with somebody who died at the bomb. Oh God. Yeah. And, and so that was a really, a really tough day. And look, the reality is that these SIVs, the folks that served alongside us and took up arms, protected us with, while they were armed. And every frontline civilian that's worked in Afghanistan is every bit the veteran that I am. And I hope that our country can come to recognize that and recognize the sacrifice that comes, uh, and often in a higher, uh, at a higher cost to those who don't wear a uniform than those who do. In the thick of it, in the days after Kabul collapsed, and you're trying to make it work, what's a specific or two that that made you say, like, this, this, is, this is nonsense, like, this needs to be working better? You know, I really wish that we could have had a better process at the gate. Um, we had lists of people. We had their passport information. We had created an app that uh, validated that they did in fact have at least what appeared to be good documents. Uh, and also uh, I know that uh, I was on the phone a lot with, uh, with government employees in the executive and legislative branches who were sobbing about how they wish they could do more. And these people were working their asses off just like everybody on the outside. And I'm really upset that, that for decades, our bureaucratic processes have prevented people who we gave 
guns to and said, hey, you're good enough to stand behind me with a firearm that could kill me. But you're not good enough to come to our country. We have to go through processing and vetting and all this extreme vetting stuff. Um, they've been vetted. They served alongside us. The least we could do is let them come here. At least they're less of a threat than the folks who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And some of those folks are law enforcement and military themselves. So sure. I don't I don't have any I don't have any room in my heart for anybody who says that these folks are dangerous. Um, and they're certainly not any more dangerous than somebody who shot up a school. And, and what you've and the many things through this that you've been able to do, um, what are you most proud of? What, it, what makes you feel really good when you think about it during the day? I am really proud, me personally, I'm really proud that I had a heavy role in getting to an agreement for government and, uh, and these private organizations to work together as a team rather than in an adversarial manner, in a manner that had an impact, had the impact of saving lives on the ground in Afghanistan. And I'm really proud that I got to take my friends to a baseball game and help them forget their troubles for, if only for a few hours. Do you realize what an amazing, good person you are? <laughs> um, I, that's, I think that's aggressive. There's a lot of good people, a lot of people. There's a lot of folks that worked in the Intel community and were set up logistics in places that maybe we didn't want to set up logistics. And You know, as this was going down, I would sometimes tweet about groups I knew of who were stuck in Afghanistan and needed help. And I would often get all this pushback from people out there who didn't want anything to look like a weakness in how the government was handling this, right? So they would say, well, all those stranded people, they should have tried earlier to get out of there. What do you say to that? We told them it would be September. There were a lot of folks that had flights out on August 28th, August 29th. Uh, also, the reality is that there's a lot of folks that couldn't leave because their SIV paperwork wasn't completed, wasn't processed. It was completed yeah. and early processed. Right. Um, there's any number of reasons why uh, it wasn't their fault they couldn't leave. And also, we're asking people to uproot themselves. To, I, I would love to know uh, if there's any lifelong Texans that if Texas was in trouble and we told them you got to leave Texas, if they <laughs> immediately uproot themselves and leave. I suspect not. The idea that, well, these people should have known better is asinine. And frankly, it doesn't matter. The reality is, is that they're in, they're in harm's way now. And we've got a whole statue in New York uh, with a poem on it that says, that ends with, bring me your, your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And that itself is an American ideal, especially when we've gone in and we did this, yeah. especially when the chaos that exists right now is due to our leaving, which is expected. So, you know, people who are Monday morning quarterbacking, <laughs> whether or not Aziz should have left two weeks earlier, um, as though anybody knew that this was going to happen this fast. I think is just seeking attention and probably should um, maybe listen to more Afghans instead of more Americans. Sean, is there anything else you'd like to say about this absolutely remarkable decision that you made to or put all of this together? I feel like I've started to cry several times during this interview. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, I am, I'm just so proud of everybody that we stood alongside. 
every single veteran, intelligence, community professional, frontline civilian, uh, you know, house, spouse, whoever, uh, West Point cadet, and everybody in between that that paused their lives for two weeks or a month or however long to dive in. You realize that these are people whose lives you've saved, likely. Yeah, but there's people that save lives every day, right? And and I think that's a, that's a human thing to do. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking this chunk of time. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Today, Sean's group has raised more than $10 million in pledges. Let's bring back Sir Richard Dearlove. Richard, like I was saying, I don't know whether to be more admiring of what these people can accomplish or more depressed that they felt the need to jump in. I agree with you. Having been so close to the situation and so involved yourself, what stays with you? I think that the reasons that we went there were were very clear initially, which was to deny, let's say, unoccupied political space to al-Qaeda and its affiliates. And that as an objective was relatively successful. I think what I regret is that, I would say the sort of Western arrogance about trying to rebuild and recreate the country. Um, And once we had made that commitment, then there was an expectation amongst those people who welcomed us in Afghanistan, and many did, that we should stay and see it through. Has this whole mess and the downfall of Afghanistan to the Taliban just highlighted the West's failures of intelligence? Um, I don't think we know the answer to that question. The assessment about the durability of the government was badly arrived, badly arrived. I, I mean, that, that, that discrepancy is, is huge. It also seems to really shine a light on the vulnerabilities and the gaps in the abilities that governments have to clean up their own messes. Yeah, I, no, I absolutely agree with you. What do you feel for those people who are going to have to grow up or shape an entirely new life under the Taliban. I think the situation that they face at the moment is pretty desperate. I mean, is the country going to disintegrate into some sort of rebellion or revolution? Um, You know, and one wonders what role women, you know, may play in the future in bringing this government to an end. You know, we had it when I was in Istanbul a few weeks ago, right after this happened, um, one of the Taliban leaders who happened, he was a former ambassador and he was in Turkey at the time. So he comes to the television station and to do an interview live. And what does he see? A female booker, a female director, multiple female producers, female researchers, female presenters and and journalists. And, you know, this guy enters this world in another Muslim country where he sees kind of the the complete flip side of life to go into a secular Muslim country. And he has to see that it's 
functioning a hell of a lot better than Afghanistan and that people have just more options in their life. You wonder why that doesn't register. They're just so hardened ideologically to that. One thinks of what happened in Kurdistan and the way that the the, the women actually fought, militarily fought in in Kurdistan um, to, you know, secure their place in society. I wonder what life will look like a year, five years down the road. Richard, thanks for your insight. As for how Lucky and his family are doing today, they're in California, recovering from the shock of what happened. They aren't sleeping well. Lucky's three-year-old daughter sometimes still thinks she's in Afghanistan. They wake up with night terrors and have symptoms of PTSD. But Lucky's working hard at his business and driving a truck, readjusting to a life with their homeland changed. They are safe. Thanks for joining us here at One Decision. I'm Michelle Kosinski. Follow us wherever you find your podcasts and on social media. Check out our website. Send us your ideas. We always love to hear from you here at One Decision.